Olivier Belli, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's a real pleasure. You're joining us from uh, Switzerland, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Now, uh, just before we get started, a little bit about you. Uh, it's my understanding that you're originally from France, right? Yeah, I'm French. So I, I work in, in Switzerland in Basel, which is basically right at the border with France. So I'm, I'm close to home. Okay, where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up in a small town called Metz, close to Luxembourg. So yeah, north, northeast of France. Oh, okay. So is that where you grew up? Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. So you, you're very familiar with the area that you're in now. <laughs> uh, cool. And did you always want to study science? Yeah, I think like from a, a very young age, I was always, always interested in science, bo both science and science fiction, actually. Like these are two patients of mine that kind of grew in, in synergy uh, as I got older. Very, very fun. I can totally relate to that, actually. <laughs> um, so right now you are a PhD student in molecular biology. Uh, for people who are not scientists, um, how would you describe what molecular biology is? So molecular biology is the, the study of all the mechanisms uh, that happen within our cells. Um, so it goes from Gen it includes genetics, uh, anything that our cells do in terms of development, for example, or um, also what we call metabolomics, so the, the study of the, the, how our cells deal with energy. And uh, yeah, it, it, it's very general, but anyf anything microscopic that happens in our cells um, is, falls within the, the realm of uh, molecular biology, basically. And you study strictly humans? Mostly humans, yeah. Um, Mostly. I or yeah, I, I, so my PhD is very, is very centered around gene editing. Um, so we use tools that are from different species, mostly bacteria. Uh, and I guess we'll get to that later with, with CRISPR. Uh, but we try to apply that mostly to human biology. Yes. Okay. Uh, that's, that's very, very intriguing. How did you decide to study that? So, um, so I guess I guess most people heard about CRISPR by now, since uh, the, there was a Nobel Prize last year for for its two discoverers, uh, Emmanuel, Emmanuel Charpentier and uh, Jennifer Downer, and so they they characterized the system in 2012, and that was also uh, the first year of my undergrad studies in biology, actually. So I was very lucky to discover this field at the at its very beginning, and to also to grow as a scientist and to see this completely new field basically uh, explode within the past 10 years almost. Um, so yeah, my, my first experiment in the, in the lab was with CRISPR and I, I kind of stuck to it. Okay, so before we get to CRISPR, maybe we should talk a little bit about the human genome, um, yeah. because it's my understanding that in order to use CRISPR, you need to understand the human genome, right? Yes. Okay, so and and it's my understanding that we've mapped we've completely mapped out the human genome, or do we still have a lot of work left to do on that? Yeah, so so it's a bit complicated because the the first human genome, uh, the first draft was published in two thousand two thousand one, um, and it's it's pretty accurate and it's pretty complete already. But there have been multiple versions, multiple updates uh, since, uh, just because. Some areas of the genome are a bit complex; they are a bit repetitive, so are a bit they are a bit difficult to reconstruct. Uh, but actually, the first uh, 
um, the first version of the human genome that's considered as complete, that's um, like the first end-to-end -end version, to, um, to be simple, uh, was published only last year. So uh, yeah, we're, we're still updating it uh, from time to time. Okay, and again, for, for the lay people out there, the human genome is, my understanding, is all the genes that make up a human being. Is that, is that a pretty accurate statement? Yes, it, it's, it's all the genes and it's uh, also all their regulatory sequences and um, anything that goes around in these genes, which is very complex. But um, to make it simple, I'd say the, the genome is just the... Um, um, is just all the genetic information that's encoded in our in the DNA that's in our cells. So if you take the whole DNA in one cell of our body, you have basically the whole your whole genome in there. There's something about this, um, uh, and I forget the actual term, and maybe you will know by just me describing it here. But whenever I think of genes, I think about the research being done um, on how genes perhaps might might have memories. Uh, from from you know um, oh. granddaughter to uh, mother to daughter, what is that called? Do you, do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. So so that's epigenetics. Yes. Um, so so it's a completely different field. It's also very new, uh, and yeah, it's it's pretty exciting. So it it kind of so basically, if we consider the genome as um, just the sequence of DNA, you know, the the four letters that compose DNA that form the the, the whole genome. Uh, epigenetics are all the, the um, uh, kind of chemical modifications on DNA that change the expression of our gene. So it's an additional layer of information that's not uh, encoded in the in the letters themselves, but in the way these letters are used uh, or or are uh, or are expressed in different cells of our body. Okay, and that's a completely different field from what from what I gather uh, yeah. from what you study. <laughs> but it mm -hmm. is pretty exciting, isn't it? I mean, do you have any thoughts to share on epigenetics? It is. It, it's amazing. It kind of uh, it has almost um, so. So as you said, epigenetics uh, is a bit different from from uh, classical genetics because um, it can it can change uh, during our life lifetime, where we consider that we inherit. Um, half of our DNA from each of our parents. Uh, and this is something that stays pretty much constant uh, throughout our lifetime. But with epigenetics, uh, these modifications uh, and different regulations, they can evolve um, during our lives. And, uh, and we can still transmit them to, uh, to our children. Yeah, it's 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 so interesting that that's kind of the things that I I, I find um, you know uh, that I I have been reading about myself because for me uh, genetics I find is such a you know I remember studying it in I think it was uh, the science of psychology maybe I don't remember mm. but I remember studying genetics and I hated it I'll be honest with you <laughs> Olivier it was so mathematical it felt mathematical it felt very dry as a subject it's not like uh, you know studying tardigrades for example um, but but it is, uh, once you, I guess people who do understand it, you must see the human body in a way that the average person doesn't. Yeah, I can relate to what you say, because like classical genetics, which is just studying the way genes are passed on, uh, is very mathematical. And of course, I'm a biologist, so I'm terrible in mathematics. Um, so clearly I can relate to what you say. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think what I find very exciting about it is that it's, 
um, it's very new. Like in the end, we the the structure of DNA, the the very well known double helix that everyone knows about, has only been discovered in the fifties, I think, or the sixties, right? Um, so it's a very young field compared to I don't know chemistry or physics or these are not things that have been uh, studied for centuries. So it's it's still kind of a it feels really like confronting yourself to this giant of nature with amazing complexity. And it's very humbling, but it's also fascinating in many ways. So in trying to piece your research together here, uh, you keep you keep saying classical genetics. Is, is that because that that's what you focus on? No, so I, I, w- I was saying classical genetics as a kind of... Um, uh, kind of a, in opposition to to what we do now, which is more uh, basically for many years, uh, genetics was just looking at families, for example, with genetic diseases, and looking at how genetic traits were passed on from parents to children, or in a in a family tree, how different genes uh, or characters were passed on to certain per- people, expressed in certain certain people and not others. I think now with with CRISPR and other uh, advances in genome editing, um, the our approach is a bit different. Now we can go directly start from the genes, especially now that we have the the sequence from the human genome. We can start from the genes, modify these genes directly inside cells, and see what happens. Uh, so I think yeah, there, there's kind of a, a paradigm shift uh, in uh, the way we approach genetics these days. Right, so it's less of a, uh, I suppose, less of a not observation and more like we yeah. can actually manipulate these things now. Yeah, exactly. Wow, and and just so that we we really kind of um, simplify genes, I'll give you an example. I did my twenty three and Me. Oh right? yeah. So the the <laughs> this the DNA test that where you know you kind of. Looks a little bit at your ancestry, which, by the yeah. way, I'm mostly all French. Uh, no surprise. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> uh, but there is a section in there, and I don't know how accurate it is, but there is a section in there that even says things like, you know, at what time do you usually wake up? Well, you're probably a late riser. And that, it was like so accurate, you know, like, oh, okay. um, you know, can can you wiggle your ears? Can you? Uh, it has all, all these like, I guess these things are genetic, right? Well, part of it are, uh, of course, I've, my. I, I think it's not something. It's a. It's a very big question in biology. You know what's uh, what's uh, and even I'd say in philosophy, what's uh, essential, like what's part of what we are, and what's just acquired through our life experiences, right? And I think now the consensus is the consensus is that. Um, our genes, of course, define who we are, but they also oh, they also interact uh, all the time um, with our environment, right? And so this is this goes back to what we were saying about epigenetics: is that, um, for example, you can have a genetic background that would maybe push you to, I don't know, maybe take more risk as a child, right? Or be I don't know more adventurous, let's say, to 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 simplify, right? Um, but then the experiences in life that you will acquire by by doing this will also kind of give a feedback to the expression of your genes. And for example, if you I don't know, like if you fall from your bike as a as a young kid, it might completely change your approach to taking risk in the future. 
So there's this constant, constant back and forth uh, feedback loop interactions between your gene and the environment, your genes and the environment. And so from about 23 and me, uh, the, the important thing to know about that is that they don't really sequence DNA. Like they don't really sequence gene and look at their function. They kind of, they look at specific markers. So we know that some very small regions in our DNA, they are associated with certain traits, but there's no, uh, causal relationship between these. It's ba it's basically just statistical association of like, if you have this specific marker, then you are probably from, uh, from France or from Europe. And, um, maybe these are associated also with, uh, statistically with some personality traits, but it's not like a, it's clearly not an exact science. Right, of course. I'm curious, Olivier, what are some genes that are absolutely hard-coded, environment cannot change them, um, like maybe diseases, things like that? Yeah, so um, I think in general, uh, because of the laws of evolution, um, genes that uh, are very essential to ourselves, that are um, like uh, indisp indispensable for their function uh, evolve a lot slower because a tiny change in these genes can completely uh, perturb the whole functioning of the cell and um, and, and kill it basically. So um, I, I work a bit uh, on, on cancer-associated uh, genes and the, one of the most important genes um, for, for cancer development is, P is called P53. And we know that in these genes... Um, like some very small mutation can completely change the way our cells proliferate and um, this could lead to the development of cancer, for example. So these genes are a bit more uh, yeah, rigid in their evolution compared to uh, genes, for example, related to, I don't know, the color of the eyes or the color of, of hairs. Um, these are genes that can evolve a bit more freely because they don't directly impact the survival of um of their career okay but like something like cystic fibrosis for example which i think is a genetic disease if i'm not mistaken yeah. mm. is something that you know it doesn't matter what diet you have it's it's yeah. a gene that's not going to change right well it, it, it can change over time but uh, of course uh, b because of this in interaction with the environment like i can give the example for example of the of sickle cell disease because that's something i know a bit more uh, about um, so sickle cell disease uh, is a disease of, uh, of hemoglobin. So it's a, mu uh, a mutation in hemoglobin uh, that uh, kind of impacts the, the structure of the, the hemoglobin molecule and, how, and its ability to fixate oxygen in the blood. Uh, and so if you, so it's, it's very common in, in people with uh, African ancestry. Uh, and the reason for that is uh, because if you only have one copy of this uh, single cell gene uh, or one, one mutated copy of the gene, because, you know, we have our chromosomes always go by pair. So we have we have two copies of this gene of uh, each of, of our genes. Um, so if you have only one copy of this single cell gene, um, it's, uh, it, it doesn't cause any adverse effect and it protects you against malaria because it prevents the mal malaria is caused by a parasite that gets into your red blood cells. So one of these mutations prevents the parasite from getting into your cells. 
but if you have two if you have two mutated copies of this gene, then it it makes you sick, and uh, we know that the the symptoms from sickle cell disease are, are, are pretty bad. Like it causes generalized pain and blood clotting. Um, so you can see like how one mutation that could be get, that could cause cause a disease in some contexts uh, could be could give an, an advantage to people uh, in in another context. That is really, really interesting. So now this begs the question then, could you uh, give people a uh, sickle cell gene in order to combat malaria if they don't have, um, if they don't have one already, right? Because you don't want to give them two. Uh, yeah, is yeah. that something that could be done perhaps in the future? So that's something that could be done now. Um, and it's a, but it's a bit tricky because... Um, if, if that's something that you pass on pass on to your child, um, then uh, you don't want your child to have the two copies, right? So you kind of have to think about the the big picture and uh, how you don't want you don't want the whole population to have one copy of this gene because otherwise their child will have a greater chance of developing the disease, right? Um, but actually, something that's being done now is the opposite: is trying to for people who have sickle cell disease. Um, it to, is to take some uh, bone marrow uh, from them, uh, edit it outside of the of their body to kind of uh, to to correct this mutation, um, and then the, and then we can just reinject the corrected cells inside their bone marrow, and we know that just correcting like something like couple percent of the the expression of hemoglobin, like five percent completely changes their quality of life like it goes from it, it almost uh, they they can almost live like a normal life after that okay wait we can actually do that today yeah so that, so there are um uh, there are a, a couple of clinical trials ongoing uh, i think both in europe and in the us uh, so it, it has been tested on on a small number of people and the, the results are really amazing it's really like again, you just have these people that are very their, their quality of life is terrible because of this disease, and you just give them a one one time treatment, and in theory, it could like these cells can just uh, stay there for their whole life and they are cured basically. So now wow. uh, I think they are trying to scale up these uh, these uh, clinical trials to to more people. That makes a lot of sense. And that would be just um, life changing, especially I would imagine on the continent of Africa. Clearly. Where, yeah. And also it would protect them. Uh, now, would they would they then also have the, the malaria protection? Uh, yes, because the so, uh, yeah, I, 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 ov I oversimplified it a bit when I said we corrected the mutation, actually, uh, what we do is just um, um, kind of we, so there are different types of hemoglobin, right? There are, there are different uh, proteins called hemoglobin that are expressed in our genes, and especially when we are uh, uh, at the fetal stage, uh, we only we only produce what's called fetal hemoglobin, and then that's something that the gene is kind of turned off uh, when we become adults. Uh, and uh, we don't express it anymore, and we express different ty other types of hemoglobin that carry this sickle cell uh, mutation. And uh, so the goal of the, the particular clinical trials I've been talking about uh, is to 
turn back on this fetal hemoglobin gene, so it compensates uh, the lack of the other ones. Okay, I see. So let's talk about CRISPR now, because um, CRISPR is the kind of technology that you would use to, to do this kind of gene editing, correct? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, what does it look like? Is is CRISPR the name of a technique? Is it the name of the machine that does it? What is CRISPR? So, so CRISPR. When when we think about CRISPR, uh, we, most of the time we think about CRISPR Cas nine, which was the first CRISPR system that was discovered. Uh, but there are many other types. But um, the most important is CRISPR Cas nine, and so this is uh, a system that's been discovered in bacteria. And uh, it's composed of two components. So one is the Cas9, which is an enzyme. And uh, this enzyme is associated uh, with what we call a guide RNA. So now, thanks to the, to the pandemics and the vaccines, everyone knows what RNA is. Uh, but um, but the, in, in this case, it's not a messenger RNA like in the vaccines. It's a much shorter one. Um, and it's called the guide RNA because... Uh, when it associates with Cas9, it kind of guides uh, the guides the enzyme um, to to any DNA target that's complementary to the guide. So what happens is that we can we can design a guide RNA that's complementary to any gene that we are interested in, and uh, the Cas9 will uh, take this guide will take this guide and sky, scan the DNA. And when it finds the sequence that corresponds to the guide, it will just bind there and cut the and cut the DNA. Yeah, okay, that's pretty but, much all that that CRISPR does. But is CRISPR um, is it a, a physical mechanism? Yeah. So CRISPR is just this the the association of these what we call CRISPR uh, in is the association of these two components, and this is um, so it's from bacteria. Because in bacteria, it forms uh, um, kind of an immune system, uh, a basic immune system in bacteria. Um, so it did, when we say CRISPR, we think about these two components. It's one enzyme and one RNA. Okay. So in my, in my head, CRISPR was a big machine. <laughs> I had no idea that it was an actual uh, process, mm. uh, more than a, an actual machine, like a telescope or a big microscope. I really, it, it, honestly, it's a molecular thought... machine. Yeah. Okay. Okay, but it's not. Uh, it's, CRISPR is something that can be taken. Uh, it's a process that, from my understanding, now that you've ex explained it, is a process that you can take from one lab to another as long as you have the equipment. Exactly. Yes. Okay, okay, now it makes sense. Uh, most people are scared of CRISPR. I guess most people yeah. don't know that, that what it is. Um, now, uh, I guess the, the question is, why should they not be scared of CRISPR? Yeah, so uh, I think what's important to understand is that um, what we do with CRISPR, um, we've, been, we've been doing that before with other tools, the big difference that CRISPR made is that it made um, this. It made what we did before a lot easier and a lot faster, uh, because we use this small RNA component. Um, the, this small guide RNA is very easy to make and very easy, easy to change. Um, so we were able, in the, with other tools in the past, to to modify DNA and to cut at certain uh, specific sites in, in our genome, for example. Uh, but now with, with CRISPR, we can just do it uh, much faster and cheaper. 
Um, and what I would say to people who are afraid of it is that um, in, in my mind, CRISPR is more a tool for research. It had, it had already a, a huge impact uh, in the past uh, in the past ten years on on genetic research. Um, so it's it's just like any other tool. Like it, it's not it's not good or bad. Like technology is never good or bad. Um, it's just of course the, the way you use it, right? Um, yeah, I think people are, are you know they're scared because you know um, people are are kind of misled to believe that, for example, genetically modified food is bad for you, right. uh, and so therefore they associate things like CRISPR and gene editing to like playing God, and that we shouldn't modify uh, natural things and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, and so I guess the argument, I guess, in order to to kind of um, argue with that one would have to know if there are any side effects to editing genes. Yes. So, um, so there, there are side effects um, uh, in, um, that, that we know of with CRISPR, for example, is that, uh, for example, the scanning mechanism that I was talking about, uh, where, where Cas9 scans DNA to find it's the, the right target, uh, it's not 100% accurate. So, so sometimes Cas9 can make, make mistakes, and uh, cut at at unintended sites in the genome. So that, that's something that we really that we are very well aware of, and that we can uh, we can learn to we we are slowly learning to mitigate. Right. So it, it's really a work in progress uh, to make these tools always more accurate and safer. Um, but um, and I, I also understand why why people are skeptical about. Um, about just the term modifying the, uh, or genetic modification, right? It's something that has a very negative connotation, and I, I can I can very well understand that. Um, but w- what's important to know is that, um, for example, when we think about uh, uh, genetically genetically modified food, um, we've been modifi- genetically mo- modifying crops for for centuries. We've been selecting them. For specific characteristics, we've been breeding them artificially to um, get rid of of some uh, some of their characters and uh, enriching for for some others. And uh, something that many people don't know, for example, is that um, uh, the companies that produce uh, seeds for uh, for agriculture uh, they just routinely produce new crops by um, irradiating uh, seeds, for example. So they just take seeds from from plants they are interested in, and they subject them to uh, radiation, to high doses of radiations, to induce uh, many many random mutations in them. And then what they do is they just look at the plants that result from that, and they just select the ones um, that they are uh, that have the characters that they are uh, interested in. And uh, this is something that's been going on for decades, and that is not considered as um, genetic modification or as GMOs. Uh, but if you just use CRISPR, for example, to introduce the exact same mutation you use with this uh, with, with this process, uh, but just to introduce precisely instead of, of bombarding your seeds with radiations, uh, then it's considered as uh, genetic modification. So I think. What, what's important to understand is that um, genetic modification is just is just a tool, and um, I think uh, in general we should focus more on what we do with it, uh, and what are the applications, what are the characteristics of the plants, for example, that we produce with these, 
uh, instead of just focusing on on the the technique we use. Yeah, that's a very, very, very good point. I'm glad you brought up that example. Um, can CRISPR be used for uh, cloning? So uh, it's interesting because cloning in in molecular biology has a, uh, kind of a different sense uh, as uh, compared to to the to what people think of when we say cloning. So you, I guess by cloning you mean just making two Copy. identical yeah. people, right? Um, so actually, to do that, you don't you don't even need CRISPR, right? Like the the clonings of of, of animals uh, have been performed way before CRISPR was was discovered. So to do cloning, what you do is just you take DNA from an adult uh, human or animal, and uh, you take you get that take their whole genome, their whole DNA, and you put it back uh, inside uh, an egg cell. Um, and then you hope that this will produce uh, the, an identical individual. But on the molecular level, could could you use CRISPR to like copy a gene? Is that uh, something that could be done? Yes. So so what I what I was uh, like as I explained before, what what CRISPR does is just cut DNA, and that's the end of the process for CRISPR. Uh, but our cells really, they really hate DNA breaks because these are toxic. They, they are dangerous for the integrity of the cell. So when there's a DNA break, uh, and this happens routinely, like we have DNA break in our cells every day when we get in the sun. Uh, it's, it's, it's a pretty normal process, right? And this is why our cells, they have um, many mechanisms in place to, re to repair these breaks as fast as possible. Um, and so when you have a DNA break, um, our cells can just stitch back the two pieces together and nothing happens. Uh, but many times this process is, uh, it, it doesn't work perfectly. So it just introduces random mutations um, at, the, the, um, at the cut site. And uh, when that happens in the middle of the gene, um, many times just, it just completely disrupts the function of the gene. It, it, destroys it completely. So with CRISPR, we can delete a gene by doing that. Uh, but we can also insert a new gene, as, as you were saying, uh, by um, still still making the same cut inside in, in the DNA, but uh, by also providing the cells with uh, a repair template. So if, if we provide a piece of DNA to our cells that looks like the, the damaged site, but that contains uh, a mutation of interest, for example, or a new gene, uh, our cells will just take this template and use it as a model for the repair. So in that way, we can introduce, uh, for example, a completely new gene or a precise mutation in our cells. So cool. I, I'm listening to you talk about this and I have like a, like big <laughs> wide eyes because I'm like, oh, okay, now I'm, I'm starting to love genes. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so now um, tell me a little bit about your own research. You mentioned that you're working a little bit with uh, sickle cell. Um, I saw on one of your... One of your biographies on, on a website that you've worked with uh, virus production, um, gene editing, genetic mutations. Tell me about the research that you're doing. Yeah. So, um, so the, the general topic of my PhD is, to, is more in the direction of technology development. So what I'm trying to do is to develop new tools based around CRISPR uh, that are more efficient or more precise to uh, 
to, to mess with our DNA, basically, and then use these tools to study uh, disease mechanisms. Uh, so, for example, uh, I, I was saying that uh, you can just destroy a gene by just cutting with with CRISPR uh, in the mi middle of this of this gene and introducing random mutations that will dis disrupt the function of the gene, right? Uh, and by doing that, um, we can we can study uh, we, we can study um, uh, different genes that uh, either we don't either we know they are. Uh, Either we had, we identified them and we don't know what they do, or uh, we know what they do in certain cell types, but not in others. Uh, and so by simply cutting with Cas9 in the middle of a gene, in, in cells in culture, for example, we can just destroy a specific gene and then look at the cells and how they behave. And that gives you a pretty that gives us a pretty good hint about um, about the function of this gene. Uh, so, so it's a very naive approach of just breaking stuff and see what happens, basically. Um, and and in, in the context of diseases, um, it's something that's very useful. Uh, for example, in cancer, you can just um, destroy many, many genes uh, with that method in, in cells in culture and see which, which ones become cancerous. Uh, and that gives you a pretty good indication that the genes you messed up with um, are important to prevent the apparition of cancer. And um, one last thing that we are working on, uh, that we've been working on recently is with uh, SARS-CoV-2, the, the virus at the, the origin of the, the COVID-19 pandemics. Uh, we can also just take cells that, from the lungs that are normally infected by the virus. And uh, by destroying uh, different genes in the cell, uh, we can see at what point these cells cannot be infected by, by the virus anymore. And so um, when that happens, when we find a gene that when, when it's broken, uh, the cells become resistant to the virus, um, it also gives us a pretty good indication that this gene is hijacked by the virus to, to infect us. And so this could potentially lead to uh, finding new treatments against, uh, against the infection. Okay, so first of all, I didn't know that viruses could infect genes. No, so so viruses infect cells, right? They but okay. to do that they need to to penetrate cells. Um, they yeah they they need to get into cells and inject their genetic material materials uh, inside the cell, and after that they just hijack the whole cell machinery to replicate themselves. They are they are parasites in some way. Uh, but to get inside the cells, the virus, you know, like. We heard a bit about the, the spike protein of the virus. If, if you think about the SARS-CoV-2 virus, the images we see is that it's kind of a sphere and you have these spikes around it. Uh, and these are proteins uh, that uh, they act kind of like a key. Uh, and when they, they, they are complementary to re some receptors that are the surface of our cells. So our cells, they just communicate with each other. They just communicate with their surroundings all the time, and they have receptors at this, their surface to get information from outside. And what the virus does is that it has this spike uh, at its surface that binds some receptors, and they act like a key, basically. So they, they just bind to a specific receptor at the surface of the cell, and it gives the signal to the cell to let them in. Uh, and so what we are looking for by uh, by looking for, we are looking for the genes that um, 
that express the, these specific receptors at the surface of cells. Wow. So, so have you actually looked at the, the source code too? Yeah, yeah, we're, we're working, working with it right now. Oh, cool. That's really, really neat. Um, so I was really curious because a lot of the stuff that you're doing is medical in nature. It is, yeah. um, you know, it, it, it really could impact our future. Uh, where do you see this technology going? I mean, like you said, you're, you're researching technology right now. You're trying to find better solutions. What do you hope for in the next five years? Yeah, so um, as I said, I think CRISPR already had a huge impact on in research, and there are still new tools that are being get, that are getting developed almost almost every month. It's really a crazy field; it's evolving insanely fast. So five years actually in this field is uh, is uh, it feels like centuries. Really, it's impossible to predict what's going to happen in five years. But some things I'm, that I'm pretty excited about are uh, new technologies that um, instead of just simply cutting DNA and letting the cell do the job to repair, there are new systems that are being, being developed to instead um, create more precise mutations. Uh, and clearly, uh, there, there are teams in the US, for example, that developed um, uh, that that developed systems that can just modify uh the letters in the genetic code, instead of just breaking it. So, in in their case, you don't you don't cut DNA. You just have an enzyme that's going to change an A with a, a T, for example. And so it's a, it's much more precise and it's also much safer because you don't introduce these kind of toxic DNA breaks. Um, and I think yeah, I'm I'm very optimistic that we're going to get to systems that are very precise very safe very, that we can tightly control and that can introduce any type of mutation anywhere we want and then we can just safely use these to in patients to to correct potential uh, mutations the uh, atlantic published an article i think in december last year or maybe the year before about um the possibility of eliminating down syndrome which was yeah. uh, which is a very large ethical question that we have to deal with. Is it ethical? Is it something we should do? Is it, um, you know, uh, it, it's it's a very it just really is a huge question. As a as a research scientist, um, do you have boundaries? Are there things in terms of ethics that you would never do, or are there things that you're excited in doing that are perhaps controversial? Like, <laughs> what where, where where would you draw the line? Yeah, it's 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 a huge question. It's it's a uh, it's really a fascinating fascinating question. But and I, I think that's something. This is really a conversation we should have as a society. And I don't think like I as a scientist should be the one to make this decision for people. Um, as you said, Down syndrome uh, is is one example. But you have a even grayer area as well. Like for example, people with um, 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 who are deaf for uh, genetic reasons? Um, many of them don't don't even consider it as a as a disease actually or as a handicap, because they it's they have their own you know their whole family environment uh, is they are surrounded by people who are also who also have impaired hearing, and so some of them actually or um, probably if you offer them a treatment. Uh, some of them probably wouldn't even accept it, right? Um, so I think um, 
I'd say in the field right now, the biggest taboo is really embryo editing, uh, which is uh, instead of correcting a mutation in a, an adult who can give a consent and we can agree to receiving a treatment, uh, you can also perform this, this, this modification at the, embryo the embryonic level. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's really a gray area because you are you are dealing with the DNA of someone who's not even born, who cannot give consent. And uh, the mutations you introduce, they will also be passed on to uh, this person's child. Um, so then, yeah, it, it really becomes, you, it's, it feels kind of opening the Pandora box uh, when you start um, modifying DNA in, in embryos. And that's something I wouldn't do personally. Yeah, I wrote a paper in high school. So we're talking like, 1990s mm. about eugenics because that was a big thing in especially in Britain and I can't remember remember why but I think that they were really really having the debate about eugenics um and I think this really touches on that topic uh you indicated um you know it's funny because we actually met through a science communication conference mm. and you indicate on your twitter account that uh you're big in science communication um so what is it about that that you're passionate about yeah, so um, actually, I'm I'm not even remotely doing as much science communication as I, I'd love to do. Of course, uh, a PhD is very time consuming. It's very stressful many times. So uh, I would love to do more. But I'm also I'm also very glad that um, working in research gives me the opportunity to to do this. Um, so I, th I think it's pretty obvious now with the pandemics why we need more and better science communication. I think um, what's really striking, striking to me is that um, people are actually eager to learn more about science. And even if you look at um, uh, like conspiracy theorists around vaccines, around COVID, around, uh, yeah, I don't know, flat earth, these are people that are actually getting by themselves pretty deep into the science. And they, they don't do it the right way. They don't reach the, the right conclusions, for sure. But um, they actually have the motivation to learn a lot about very complex and specific topics. Like I, I was very stricken when I, I watched this Netflix documentary about the Flat Earth Society. I think it's called Beyond the Curve. And so you, you have these people that are basically trying to scientific, scientifically demonstrate that the Earth is flat. So they do actual math uh, and they design legit experiments to try to demonstrate that the Earth is flat. And unsurprisingly, they keep redemonstrating that the Earth is not flat. But I think it's kind of impressing for just lay people to be able to get into such complex topics because, I mean, I know the Earth is not flat, but I don't know why. I wouldn't be able to demonstrate it uh, by myself, right? Um, so to go back to science communication, I think, um, there, there was this conception in science communication for a long time, um, which, um, was called the, the knowledge deficit model, uh, where people thought that basically people didn't know enough about science and the more information you would give them, the more they would trust science. And we know now that that's not true. Um, I think, I think as scientists, uh, and researchers in particular, we, we like to see ourselves as uh, carriers of uh, of objective truth, um, 
but I, I think especially in the in the context of a pandemic where many information are circulating we should not we should not like see ourselves as independent actors that are separate from the public debate i think actually that scientists should um get politicized in some way or at least like take a stand in the public debate like understand that uh, science is political anything we do is political especially in in fields like like crispr for example that are controversial and that raise very deep ethical questions um and i think we should um we should accept that and we should get a bit more involved um and um yeah just explain explain to the public what we do and how we do it you bring up a really good point in that um you know one of the the last uh, interviews i did where i was a guest i i was asked if um if I felt like there wasn't enough science literacy in the public mm. and that that's why we have cons- conspiracy the- theorists. And I, I very, uh, very much disagreed. And I, I, you know, I, I really feel as a non-scientist, but who's a science communicator, that the problem is uh, the lack of trust. Yeah, There's a lack of trust in the institutions, including medicine, science, the academy, and all that stuff. And I think that there's, um, like you said, this kind of sometimes um, ivory tower looking down yeah. on people. Uh, do, you, do you feel that sometimes there is a disconnect between academia and um, non-academics? Oh, definitely. And I think, um, I think it's a complex question because... Um, as you said, there's a lack of trust in in scientific institutions, but it, it's not limited to science, right? I think I think in the Western world now, there's a big lack of trust in um, what one would call the establishment, and um, we have to accept that we are part of it. Like, and universities are very big and very bureaucratic institutions, um, and so yeah, I, I think it's a general issue that. You know, scientists alone cannot solve the the trust issues in in the institution, of course. Um, But I think, um, yeah, as a researcher, I feel clearly there's a lack of uh, of support, for example, first of all, for these kind of initiatives. It's starting, I have to say, in in many universities now, like university cities are starting to recognize that uh, communicating about your results is actually part of your job as a researcher because you work with taxpayer money so it's it's only fair that you that that the people you work for uh, get the information you about what you discovered and what you are working on um and i think i think there's also sometimes the uh, sort of a feeling of helplessness from from scientists and that's at least how i felt at the beginning of the pandemics where you see all these false information circulating and it feels like a, it feels like just too much to fight against and um yeah clearly there there's a lot of work to do and we've been i think we spent too long just being a bit passive about that and i think uh universities should become again the place of open knowledge uh, and of course, open access, for example, for scientific publications would be one very important step in, in that direction. 
That's a really, really big one is uh, the journals. Uh, again, as a non-scientist who does uh, science communication about micro microscopic life, mm. I don't know everything. And sometimes yeah. I want to access a journal article. And because I'm not associated to a university, I don't have access to them. So it can be extremely difficult. Um, we have about 10 minutes left. Alvi, I really mm. want to talk about your other hobbies outside of science. Mm -hmm. um, I see that you play the bass guitar. Yeah. Tell yeah. me about that. So, yeah, I've... I used to sing in a band for a long time, uh, um, but I have to say I'm not I'm not really a musician by training, so it's more of a just a naive hobby. Uh, but I, I, yeah, I've always been a fan of music, of heavy music in general, like metal, uh, rock, blues. Um, I've always loved always loved loved that, and so I got a chance when I was younger to get into a band um, where they really needed a singer. And so uh, their standards were low enough for me to get in. Uh, and more recently, I got into bass. Yeah, I, I play in a new band uh, uh, called Monoatomic God. And uh, yeah, I play bass there. Are you guys all, all scientists? No, no, no. I'm the only one. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I had to ask because of the, the band name. Yeah, yeah. I also write the the lyrics, so I kind of inject a bit of uh, of science in there. I feel oh, like so you guys uh, create your, your you guys create your own original music. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. We write only original songs. Um, but yeah, I feel like uh, art and science mix very well in general, and it's probably because art and as I, as I was saying at the very beginning, like science fiction was probably the thing that got me into science. Um, I really like like closing the loop now and reinjecting some of the science I do inside uh, in, inside music. Absolutely. Now, science fiction. Uh, do you prefer books or films? Uh, I think in science fiction, I read more books. Um, I grew up with the the X Files, um, and uh, it it was very it it, it was very nice uh, recently when like the, there was this last season that came out like ten years after the end of the series. And uh, like in the last season, actually, they justify, spoiler, spoiler alert, but they justify uh, everything that happened in the series with CRISPR, actually. They, like, like the final yeah. plot twist is that the, the government used CRISPR to uh, inject uh, alien DNA in our genome. Uh, that was pretty cool as a scientist to see that. Wow. <laughs> that is actually really cool. Hey, actually, do you think that could happen in the future? Well, we need to find alien DNA first. Well, but... I mean, we are going to. <laughs> I think it's, it's funny. It's funny because I've interviewed a couple of, um, you know, astrophysicists mm. slash astrobiologists. Uh, and it's something that always I always ask them. I'm like, you know, you guys study space. Do you think there's alien life? And they all say yes. I mean, yeah, yeah. it's it's inevitable. There's so much. There's so much out there. that Yeah. You know, I... Actually, it's one of my uh, of my scientific dream would be to get my hands on some alien DNA or or whatever it is. Actually, because the interesting question about that is that if we find if we find extraterrestrial life, like um, we could imagine that they they would have a completely different form of uh, support of information that could be completely different from DNA. Right? I saw papers like where people talk about carbon-based um, polymers or uh, this kind of things. And um, actually, I don't know what would be the most exciting. Like if we find something that's completely different, 
or if we find a form of life that also has DNA and in the end that is kind of similar to us because that would just mean that maybe this is the only way to this is the only way for life to exist right? I think in both cases it would be amazing I think that's the big question that's going to be answered uh probably in our lifetime if I were to guess hopefully you know uh especially because they're bringing back soil from Mars mm. I'm 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 betting on the fact that we're going to find like a Martian tardigrade. Oh yeah, oh, but <laughs> and they are al- these guys are alien enough, right? Like oh my god, yes. That, that's the thing. Like we have, I think that's what I like about biology is that it's a pretty young science. It feels like there's still so much to discover, and sometimes some organism on Earth feels completely alien really and so yeah we we still have a lot of work we still have a lot of stuff to pass the time before we find something on mars i think yeah and i mean just the creatures in the deep sea right i mean we still Mm. don't know a lot about what lives really 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 at the bottom of the ocean yeah yeah clearly also like just yeah sometime when i have time I, i like to read research articles about octopi for example and they are like that's just crazy, really. When you when you study the human genome, it becomes as as you said, you get a, a different perspective on our body, on how how we perceive what what happens in our body, right? Uh, but then when so it becomes familiar, but then when you look at these yeah, weird organisms, it's like it's like all paradigms are just shattered. It it's completely different. Yeah, it's really cool. Uh, so I guess uh, to, to close up the, the this episode, I wanted to know what, what are you doing after you're done your PhD? Are you staying in Switzerland? Do you want to go to the United States? What's the next plan? So actually, before starting my PhD, I was, uh, I was working for one year in a, in a company in California. So um, I'd really like to go back to the industry for some years because just because I feel like the... The biotech industry, the way it works, it I feel is a, a lot more collaborative. Like I, I really enjoyed working in, in in companies because I was interacting all day with informaticians, data scientists, chemists, and um, I feel like it was a very exciting environment uh, for me. Um, but then also, I also, as I said, I I would also really like to do uh, to do more science communication. So. Um, when I have a, a bit more time, uh, I'd really like to start maybe uh, a Twitch channel. I think that that's something that I'm really attracted to because I, I tend to listen to a lot of uh, of podcasts, just like the one you do, or uh, yeah, long format uh, interviews. Um, so yeah, that, that's something I'd like to explore. That would be really cool. There's a lot of us on Twitch, so come and join us and come to the dark <laughs> side. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> uh, Olivier Belli, again, thank you so much for being on the show. I really learned a lot from you. I actually can't believe that an hour has already gone by. I could yeah. probably ask you 200 qu- more questions, but we'll leave it at that for now. Um, good luck with the rest of your um, your studies, and I hope that uh, – Do you? so is your band somewhere on Instagram, or is there anywhere I can listen to your music? Uh, so we are on Bandcamp. So uh, but, yeah, you can find the name on my on my Twitter. Actually, it's Monoatomic God. Cool, yeah. cool. So we'll link to your Twitter account then. And yeah. uh, again, thanks, thanks for coming on the program. Yeah, thank you very much. It was a lot of fun, and uh, good luck for uh, your future podcast. I'm looking forward to listening to. Thanks very much. Mm-hmm.